Beyond the four walls of our local church building is the church, the universal body of Christ, a vibrant living organism. It's eclectic, it's bold, it's colourful, and it's resilient. A cacophony of languages, sounds, people, and practices where every voice comes together to tell the story of God throughout the centuries. I'm your host, Jordan, from Open Doors, and together we'll hear from people from all over the global church and meet believers who follow Jesus in some of the most dangerous places to be a Christian. In the face of tremendous pressure, God is moving. This is The Whole Story. Hello and welcome to a special episode of The Whole Story podcast. It's the Christmas episode. Our guest this week is Ashley Anderson. She's the missions pastor at Church of the City in New York. And I got connected with Ashley after I heard a sermon she preached called Letter from the Persecuted Church, which was just filled with incredible stories and some really honest heartfelt processing of the role that the persecuted church really play in mentoring us here in the Western Church. Um, Ashley lives in New York and uh, she's been connected with the persecuted church not only through meeting them but also hearing many stories through friends and uh, through organizations like Open Doors and Ashley was super inspiring to me because just like many of us she hears the stories uh, of the persecuted church but she doesn't just listen to them. She lets herself be challenged and changed by them, and her faith has been deeply impacted by the persecuted church. So I wanted to get Ashley on to chat about what it really looks like to walk with the persecuted church in a place like New York City, where, you know, geographically, she's quite removed from the persecuted church, yet she keeps herself really close, uh, and she really takes seriously maintaining the bond of unity. So my conversation with Ashley was beautiful. We laughed and we cried and I was really moved by her devotion to the the global body of Christ and it comes from a really deep place in her heart. So I won't keep you waiting any longer. Here's our conversation about walking with the persecuted church in New York City. Ashley Anderson, thank you so much for joining me on this month's podcast. It's our Christmas episode, uh, which is super exciting because I feel like Christmas in New York is more magical than any other time uh, in New York. It also happens to be the only time I've been to New York, uh, which is in Christmas. So thank you so much for for taking time uh, out of your busy schedule to sit down with me and chat about the persecuted church. Absolutely, Jordan. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here. Oh, we, uh, I'm, we've already been chatting offline um, and you're just, every time you open your mouth, there's something beautiful there. So I just uh, can't wait for everyone to hear um, just what God's put on your heart uh, about the global church. Um, so maybe start by telling us a little bit about yourself. Where do you live uh, and what does your day-to-day look like? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I live in New York City, where I'm a missions pastor at Church of the City. And the heartbeat of our church is really to make compelling missional disciples who are marked by presence, formation, and mission. And so um, living missionally and living into the kingdom and into the life that Jesus offers us is just such a big part of our church and a big part of our life here in New York. And My role allows me as missions pastor to spend a lot of time with people who don't consider themselves Christian, who are exploring faith and exploring the things of God and the things of life. Um, And also a lot of time with people who are marginalized in some way or disenfranchised in different parts of society. Um, And then a part of my role is emerging into global partnerships as well, which is really dear to my heart. So that's what my life is like when I'm at work. And when I'm not at work, I spend a lot of my time in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, where I live just off of Central Park, which is kind of a magical place to be in New York City. Yeah, it's really lovely. So lots of time spent on long walks through the park or long walks exploring different neighborhoods in the city, having incredible food, great conversations with really wonderful people. So life in the city is really dynamic, although I'm also a really big traveler. And so when I'm not here, I'm usually exploring the world somewhere. I am a scuba diver, 
And so exploring the ocean is a big part of my heart and a big part of how I like find adventure and encounter with God. Um, And then also just like, yeah, just traveling around the world, visiting friends, particularly the Middle East is a place that um, has a big part of my heart. So I'll often vacation there, visiting friends, getting to explore their cities, um, worship in their churches, which uh, gives me a glimpse, you know, of what God's doing in the world and more vision for what God is doing in my own city. Wow, that's so amazing. First of all, scuba diving. Um, how did you get into scuba diving? <laughs> um, I actually was terrified of the ocean growing up. I grew up in California outside of San Francisco where there are many great white sharks. And so I developed this like equal part fascination and fear with the ocean. (laughs) And when I turned 30, I decided that I, I just like would never go into the water at the beach. And I decided at 30 that I either needed to be all in or all out on the ocean. And so I decided to try scuba and I was either going to love it or hate it. And I ended up loving it and opened this whole other world to me and I've gotten to dive with sharks many times now at this point and I completely come alive under the water oh my gosh where's your ultimate scuba diving location where's the best scuba you've ever done the most beautiful place is Cozumel which is off the coast of Mexico Um, and it's like a protected uh, marine sanctuary and so you just see the most vibrant coral and giant fish and they're every color you could ever imagine and exploring the ocean is just such a wild way to explore the creativity and depth of who God is because he just made all of these things that people were not going to see for thousands and thousands of years but he made them beautiful because that's what he does. Wow, that's so cool. I can't help but see the parallels between you living right in the middle of New York City with all of the like the color and the life and the people and then diving deep and on also feeling very small under the ocean and just kind of being overwhelmed by the vastness of the ocean. Um, Of course, the silent version um, and maybe a little less pollution, but still you, you clearly love to put yourself in places where you're surrounded by, um, by creation and what God's doing and by people and, and dynamic, um, uh, color and conversation uh, which is really cool um, especially being drawn to the Middle East as well I feel like the Middle East is like that um, as well Um, tell us uh, a little bit about how you ended up in your role um, at as missions pastor at Church of the City Uh, how did you end up in that role and what makes you really passionate about missions yeah I when thinking about that um, what comes to mind is actually the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which is such a funny framework for a vocation or career. But as I was sitting with that question, what really comes to mind is, you know, the Wesleyan quadrilateral is scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. And these four things are meant to draw us nearer to God. And um, tradition is the church has a long history of missions movements and it has a long history of being really missional and there have been times where the church hasn't gotten this right but at its best the church has been doing like breathtaking beautiful work in the margins of society bringing light into dark spaces and scripture i mean matthew 25 is one of the surest promises of where you can find the presence of god And he says he'll be among the hungry and among those who are not clothed and those who are in prison. And he says that when we encounter those people, we've actually encountered him. Um, Reason, the gospel is good news. And it's some of the only good news that is actually good news to people outside of the community of knowledge. So very little other messages are good news for the people who are not on the inside but the gospel is one of the few messages that's good news for everybody, good news for the people who aren't there yet. Um, and then experience. Um, I didn't come to faith until I was an adult. And so it was a little bit disorienting entering like an entire new community, new culture, and this whole new like paradigm for life by myself. Nobody else in my family is Christian. And what I think that did was it. I live with the awareness of what it was like before I knew the gospel and before I knew God. And so on the evangelism side of things and on the side of just like carrying the gospel, 
into places where it's not yet known. Um, that feels so important to me because for many, many years of my life, nobody told it to me. So I had never actually rejected the gospel. I had just never been given it. And pretty much the first time somebody invited me to church, I said yes. <laughs> and so that's a, yeah, that's a big part of my heart and my story. And um the other part of my work, which is caring for the poor and working um, for justice in our city, that was just a big part of my childhood. My family, although not Christian, have always been really passionate about um, befriending people experiencing homelessness or bringing people home for Christmas who had no other place to be. Um, and my dad just modeled this way for me since childhood. And so it felt like a very integrated part of faith for me um, in a very intuitive way to uh, not just proclaim the gospel, but demonstrate it to the world. And so that was maybe a more complex answer than <laughs> needed. Oh, I love that. That's, that's so cool. Part of what so the Wesleyan quadrilateral is, you said, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Is that right? Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. So all those four elements bring us closer to God. And um, it is true that maybe, you know, we find ourselves heavier on one and less on the other. But yeah, when we enter in and find him in all of those things, um, yeah, that's that's really amazing um I mean you've you've touched on so much there like coming to faith later um being raised by um you know incredible parents who you know love the poor and have a heart for the poor um I mean yeah like all of those things I guess have formed you um what when you came to faith um what surprised you about your you know your newfound um relationship with god and and the the church what what surprised you about that kind of transition there were so many things i found surprising <laughs> um but probably just the proximity of God to people felt completely shocking that I could actually pray to God and hear his voice and know him and be known by him. Um, that was one of the most compelling things that led me to him because I felt pretty lost in my life and pretty alone and pretty uncertain. And just the the presence of a God who knew not just, you know, all of human history, but he knew me and he knew what was going on in my heart and he knew what I needed and he knew what was beneath what I needed, um, was just completely, um, shocking to me. And also just like the love of Christians. I, I remember being brought into a family. Um, it was the first Christian family I got to see up close. And the thing that shocked me was like, I've never seen people love each other quite like this. And it just made me curious. That's so lovely. I'm so glad that was your experience. Um, yeah. your very first experience. That's amazing. I mean, I'm a I'm a big Church of the City listener. Um, I'm I'm a big podcast junkie. And the Church of the City podcast is one that I have on very regularly. Um, and it's one of my most listened to podcasts. And so I have heard your voice um a few times over the podcast. You've been with me in the car. Um <laughs> but one of your sermons really caught my attention. Um, it's called Letter from the Persecuted Church. And uh, in this message, you share some very challenging lessons from the persecuted church on what following Jesus actually looks like. And I can tell that that came from a really, really deep place for you. Um, and, and it's what connected us in the first place. Um, uh, it's, it's why we, we ended up getting connected. Um, uh, so I'm super grateful for that message. Where did that message come from? And, you know, you mentioned you've, you've spent time in the Middle East and traveling. Um, what has your journey been with the persecuted church, both, um, when you've been with them, worshiping with them, um, and also while you've been distant from them, living in New York, um, doing life, uh, really in in what feels like quite a geographically removed way um yeah what, what's your journey been with the persecuted church yeah what was interesting about that message is it came in a sermon series where we were teaching through the book of uh, first thessalonians and so I had been sitting with the passage for maybe a couple of weeks and I knew I was up to preach and I had thought through a couple different angles on like how to dig into that particular text 
but it was one morning I was at church on a Sunday and I was worshiping. And while I was worshiping, I just felt this sink into my heart where it was just so obvious that it needed to be about persecution. And it also needed to be very distinctly a letter from the persecuted church, not a letter to the persecuted church. And I think I had thought often about how we are meant to be an encouragement to those who are suffering. And it's true. And that's a big part of what I preached on in that message. But I just knew distinctly that this message actually had to be a message from the persecuted church to the Western church, to churches that are not experiencing the same level of persecution um, and kind of like a challenge to live more consecrated lives. Um, and it, yeah, I think it's just no coincidence that it's not like, you know, we were singing a song about persecution and I was like, that's a great idea. <laughs> it's literally just when you lift your heart to God, your heart becomes more like God's. And when you're worshiping him and lifting your eyes to him, you start to see what's in his heart. And so it felt completely not coincidental that in worship, it was very obvious that that was the message that I was meant to preach. So that's on a small scale where that message came from. Um, but in a larger scale, like you mentioned, really just, um, you know, I'm coming much less from a place of like experience or expertise than maybe some of your other podcast guests um, and more from what it's like sitting on the other side of those people. So I've had friends who ended up in, I used to live in Washington, D.C., and there was a pretty big refugee population there and have had friends who come from persecuted places and also friends who are missionaries in places of persecution and just sitting on the other side of their stories, really treasuring them in my heart and letting them shape me has been such a big part of my own discipleship. And I just felt very clearly that it ought to be a part of the discipleship of our church um, and particularly in our context in the West. So that's where that came from. That's so cool. Um, because I feel like so many people will connect with that, with that, um, you know, feeling really kind of like being on the other side, um, feeling quite, you know, far away physically. Um, but then storing those, um, stories in their heart and treasuring them in their heart and letting them change. And I love that your emphasis was on a letter from the persecuted church. Um, at Open Doors, we talk about how, yes, we serve and support the persecuted church, but the persecuted church are our greater spiritual mentors. Like they teach us, um, so much about what it looks like to, um, live a, a very brave, laid down, sold out life for Jesus um, that really, uh, yeah, lives for eternity and not for now. Um, and I mean, in in your sermon, um, you share some incredible stories from Iran and Jordan, uh, among other places. Um, is there one story that you feel like has really impacted your discipleship to Jesus most? Yeah, I, my friends who are living in Jordan, so they are Americans and one was an accountant and one actually worked on Capitol Hill um, in our nation's capital, working in Middle Eastern policy. And then they left their jobs and moved to the Middle East um, with a real conviction that peacemaking comes through the gospel. And through just like sitting with them and hearing about the disciples that they're making. And um, they have a real vision for like equipping and training um, locals, nationals to reach their own communities. Um, so it's genuinely like a handful of their stories that have really shaped me. But one in particular stands out. Um, they have one disciple that I will just call Ali for the sake of his own safety. Um and they led him to Christ within the last two years. Um, and he is a Muslim background disciple. And in Jordan, um, it's not illegal to be Christian. It's just not legal to become Christian. And um, he was the only person in his family that had come to faith in Jesus. And so began quite immediately, though, without any real like... Um, 
concern for his own like safety or reputation, he began joining them in ministry. So not only like walking out his own discipleship, but very immediately began joining them on house visits, bringing the gospel to other people in his community. Um, And he even started financially supporting other Arab missionaries um, that were a part of this team. And unfortunately, when he did that, actually, like, is how he like pinged on the radar of um, the secret police. And so they brought him in for investigation and interrogation that just lasted like weeks on end with no cell phone, no access to the outside world. And after weeks of this, they actually released him. Um, but by the time he got home, all of his uncles were waiting outside for him. And they immediately took him into the house, put him in the basement, where he spent several more months in isolation. So still with no access to the outside world, with no access to an internet or a phone. And he shared that he and many times during the course of those months actually thought about ending his own life that he just like felt so desperate and it was such a dark place and a dark time but how he got through is he would recount out loud passages of the book of Matthew that he had memorized by heart that he had taken his discipleship so seriously that he had like whole chapters of the book of Matthew in his spirit. And he would just say them out loud. And he said those like brought him back to life. And at the end of that span of several months, he was able to speak with his parents. And he asked his mom, like, essentially, what do you want from me? Like, how do I get out of this basement? And what she said was she just wanted her family to be restored. And she wanted him to go to mosque with them again. And so he said he could agree to that. And so they let him out of the basement. He got to go back into his room. Still no cell phone, no internet, no contact with the outside world. But he was able to pick up his Bible, which my missionary friends had bought for him. And the cover of the Bible looks like a Quran, but on the inside, it's the Bible. And he would bring that with his family to the mosque and sit in the back of the mosque. And while all the Muslims around him were facing Mecca and praying, he would sit in the back and read the teachings of Jesus. Um, Until one day, unfortunately, he was caught. And that's when his family just kind of like last hope, last ditch effort to get him to renounce Jesus, sent him to another relative in the country, which was essentially like a labor camp for him, where he just had to work long days, hard days, no pay, no contact with anyone outside of his family. And after many, many more months of that, he finally returned home and his family felt like he had kind of like paid his dues. They gave him his cell phone back. And the first thing he did with his cell phone was call my missionary friends. And he said, let's get back to work. And that story. (laughs) um, That story. Yeah, that story, it just completely blows open how I think about discipleship. Like, honestly, in New York, it can be so easy to be like, you know, your work schedules are so intense, like everybody here is just grinding it out in a different career. And we can try to make discipleship lighter and lighter so that it's more accessible for people. But the reality is like, this is actually like the baseline of discipleship. (laughs) Like this is the baseline of what it looks like to live for Christ, which was not only his incredible discipline to memorize the scriptures, to have the word of God in his heart, but also his incredible devotion to sacrifice anything to share the gospel that that was his first response after getting his freedom was like how do we get back to work that like completely upended for me like what discipleship is about oh my gosh that is such a mind-blowing story I think it really illustrates the cost that um you know, that uh, like, you know, this is a native Jordanian, but, um, you know, from so many different parts of the world, the immediate cost of following Jesus is it's Jesus or your family. I mean, most of us, if we were to write a list of the things that were most important to us, family would be the top, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so then when you, when, when that's on the line, um, I didn't, count that cost when I gave my life to Jesus uh, when I was 13 um, because I didn't have to. But wow, when you're 
receiving the gospel and you know that you're putting all of that on the line. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's huge. And what a different discipleship <laughs> that is, you know, because I mean, in, in that basement, he didn't have anyone but Jesus and those words that he'd stored up in his heart. It's crazy. I mean, that story, uh, you know, feels like a different world, honestly, um, to, you know, the way that we practice Christianity in the West. Um, and, and we can feel quite far away or disconnected from our persecuted family like Ollie. Um, living in New York City, where your context is wildly different um, uh, to, to some of these nations like Jordan, how do you stay uh, emotionally connected with your persecuted family? Yeah. Um, I would say through, I mean, through organizations like yourself, through even the missions department of your local church to find missionaries or find disciples who are living in places of persecution. And I think the main way that once you're connected to them, you stay connected is through relationships and stories. And so relationship for me means partially that you are going to back and fund like what they're doing. So it's a gift to them financially. Jesus says, where your treasure is there, your heart is also. And I think that not only means, um, you know, you give to what's on your heart, but that means what you give to has your heart. So one of the best ways to actually invest your heart into something is to invest your finances in it. And then also to to know their stories, to treasure their stories, like we've been talking about. I think something really interesting um, about something that happened in the life of Jesus was what happened with Mary of Bethany when she broke anointing oil, poured it on his feet. And then he said, whenever this message is preached, whenever the gospel is preached, her story will be told also. For thousands of years and around the entire world, he actually wove in a story of one woman's devotion into the story, the broader narrative of his life, death, resurrection. And so I think that's just actually in the heart of God, that stories of devotion are woven in and out of his own story. And so I think that in treasuring these stories, these stories of devotion from the field, we're honoring Jesus and we're honoring the gospel and they're so integrated. And so relationship, giving financially to people in places of persecution, also committing to them relationally, committing to them in prayer, and then treasuring their story and telling their story, continuing the tradition of Jesus by retelling stories of devotion is so integral. Um, and then finally, I think the ultimate thing that really connects us to the persecuted church is becoming well acquainted with our need for them, which is what you were alluding to earlier. And for me, that's so evident in the passage of First Corinthians 12, which is all about the body of Christ. And it, it says, just as one body, the one has many parts, but all of his parts form one body. So it is with Christ. God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you're the body of the Christ and each one of you is a part of it. And so what that actually means is that we are all a part of one body, all connected to the head, all connected to Jesus but connected to each other also. And something that we have probably heard of um, as Christians, if you've read the New Testament, um, is a disease called leprosy. And what leprosy is, is it's a neurological disorder. So it's not only a skin disease where, you know, ration sores would form, but it's a disease that brings numbness to your body. And for that reason, people with leprosy will sometimes lose like fingers and toes because they just like bump and bruise them and nick them over and over again without feeling pain. And in the same way, so if in your body, when you lose feeling, you lose power, I believe that that's actually true for the church. So I believe that there is like a malaise and there's a leprosy that has crept over the church where we actually have lost power because we cannot feel the whole body. And the reality is like, we will not regain power if we do not regain feeling. 
Like we can't sit back and wonder why we don't have power in the West when our brothers and sisters in the East and in the global South are in chains and are in pain and we do not ache with them. We won't have power unless we have feeling. That's what Hebrews 13, three says. It says, remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. It says, remember those are, who are mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. And I think until we feel the pain of the persecuted church in our own bodies, we actually will not regain the full power, the full measure of like Christ in the church. Wow. So much there, Ashley. Um, I mean, I love how um, you bring parts of the scripture to life it through the lens of um, the body of Christ. It's so beautiful. Um, I've never actually thought of Mary of Bethany um, until hearing you, um, of Mary of Bethany and that poured out, laid down devotion, um, also being the story of our persecuted family, like Ollie, um, that, that just I'm going to pour out everything I have for Jesus. Um, and I don't care what, what that means. That's, that's really beautiful, Ashley. And I just, I can hear your heart and conviction, um, all through that. Church of the City did a sermon series that I really loved and have listened to actually multiple times about converting the church. Do you want to talk us through what converting the church means? Because, Converting the church um, from the outside sounds kind of antithetical. You know, it sounds like a reverse. (laughs) Surely we're converting outside the church. So what does converting the church mean? And what role do you see um, our persecuted family like Ollie playing in converting the church? Yeah, converting the church was a sermon series that we did on the seven woes to the Pharisees issued by Jesus um, as a rebuke to the religious elite of his time. And one of those woes, he said, woe to you, teachers and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And yet when you succeed, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are harsh words from Jesus of Nazareth. (laughs) But this is essentially a rebuke to convert our own hearts before we convert the world. Um, Under the premise that some of the most challenging things said about the hypocritical nature of religious people was said by Jesus. And so how do we first consecrate, convert our own hearts before we then step into the world with this message of redemption? And I think persecuted Christians play a really large role in this persecuted Christians around the world and their stories. They are sobering. They ought to actually pull us out of these lesser issues, which is essentially what the Pharisees were tangled up in secondary doctrine, lesser issues. And Jesus was trying to redirect them to the center, to the core of his person and his message. Um, And I think persecuted Christians do just that. They lift the focus of our eyes, our affection, our attention, it back onto Jesus. Um, and one way actually that that I've seen that play out, I um I got the privilege of walking with a church in Jordan, um, actually unrelated to the other friends that I have there. It's a church right on the Syrian border that did a lot of really beautiful work as the Syrian civil war was erupting. Um, and they opened their doors many times a week to serve people who are fleeing from ISIS and serve family members of ISIS. And they, they genuinely just like cut through essentially every line of division with open arms. And one of the people that I got to meet there who had encountered the gospel once he crossed the border into Jordan through this church. His name was Menhal. And in encountering the gospel, he actually like went back through his story, named every person he needed to forgive and forgave them. And part of his story is he was kidnapped by ISIS, beaten, tortured, left in the desert for dead and had to drag his way across the Jordanian border. And so he's sitting there in front of this group of Christians talking about like, well, I received this message of forgiveness. And so, of course, like without wrestle and without struggle, he's like, and here are the names of the men that I've now forgiven. 
And in my own story, actually, there's a lot of, honestly, unforgiveness marked in my own story. I've had a complicated childhood and parents that were imperfect people and imperfect people that I had a really hard time forgiving. But it was quite challenging to look into the face of Menhall and see the forgiveness that he was demonstrating as a baby believer and to then hold unforgiveness in my heart. It was actually impossible to hold his story and unforgiveness at the same time. And so I think that that is one of the roles that the persecuted church plays in converting the church. There's, you know, this long history in church tradition of recording Christian suffering and martyrdom. Fox's book of martyrs was compiled in the 16th century. And since then, it's been one of the best-selling books in Christian history. And yet the purpose of that book and the purpose of this tradition, it's not to exalt martyrdom or to exalt suffering. It's to exalt the person of Jesus. It's not about glorifying death. It's about glorifying Jesus, which you know well, because the through line of all Christian suffering and the message beneath all persecution is this. It's isn't he worthy? Isn't he worth it? Isn't he wonderful? And I really believe that between the persecuted church and the rest of the body of Christ, it's this call and response. And so when those who are living in Western secular cities like I am and like my church is, when we choose to actually live consumed by the beauty and the goodness of God, when we reject half-hearted faith or a devotion that actually costs us nothing or spirituality that can be compartmentalized into some parts of our life, but not all, but when we actually choose to reorient our whole lives around the person and the purpose of Jesus, we echo back to those who are suffering for their faith that he is worthy. He is worth it. Oh, yeah. You're like, yeah, bringing tears to my eyes. Just thinking about... um yeah, I remember. I remember being in a um, in an Orthodox church in Egypt, and so much of what you're saying is just ringing true and just bringing up this memory because there were these. Um, I'm trying not to cry. There were these boxes full of um, relics from old saints, um, which just means like bones, really, of these old saints um, that were in this Orthodox church. And I think at first, like, my heart was a bit offended. Like, why do you have these here? Like, why are you lighting candles underneath them? Um, Like, why? I mean, this is just creepy, honestly. But for them, it was their reminder that this costs everything. Like, they, they have the bones of the saints and the martyrs who have, you know, died for their faith as a reminder that when they go into church, this costs all. Um, And wow, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I'm so glad I've recorded my conversation with you so that I can keep listening to the things that you're sharing, Ashley, because this is um, really, really powerful. Um, I mean, I know this is a huge question and it's really speculative, um, but what do you see the God doing in the global body of Christ. Um, what do you think is the future of the church with a capital C? Hmm. I, yeah, I think that that perhaps this even sounds repetitive and redundant, but I believe at least what I'm seeing in the West and what feels echoed in the East is God just restoring the devotion of the church and God really cleansing his pride. And so I see the church in the West really bending away from the things that had allured her for so long, like a lot of the fame, a lot of the, um, yeah, a lot of the production, a lot of the secondary things that had become so primary in the Western church and had built such a, a culture um, around people and not necessarily around God. And you know, the last couple of years have been like a real cleansing and we've seen so much scandal and so many things come to light that were so dark and so heartbreaking. 
And in some ways you kind of lift your hands and you're like, well, what now? Like, is the Western church an irreversible decline? Like, is there any turning back? Is there any hope after all of these people who felt like giants of the faith have fallen? And yet you actually see God doing this, this beautiful cleansing alongside pruning. And, and you're starting to see like voices and people rise up with just a purity of devotion and the centrality of Jesus. It's like Jesus is back at the center of his church and he will not have it any other way. And, and to be honest, it feels like we're trailing still very far behind our brothers and sisters in persecuted places. And I think it's no coincidence that like the fastest growing revival right now is happening not in America, but in Iran, primarily led by women in underground churches. And um, yeah, what that what that says to me is that 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 God is just like restoring um yeah, a community of devotion and a community of worship of people who will actually like set their eyes on him as the central thing. And even in mission, I think for so long, like mission has been done in the name of justice and not necessarily in the name of Jesus um, and restoring him at the center of like, this is actually why you bend your lives to the margins of society out of devotion and love for Christ. Um and I think that that one of the beautiful things that's always been true about martyrdom, that was true about Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is that these aren't people who have just like, you know, like grit their teeth and sunk their feet into the, the sand and said, like, I'll die for an idea. They were they were actually dying as an act of devotion to a God they loved. And in the book of Acts, you see Stephen's um, moment of being martyred. And in that moment, he actually gets a standing ovation from Jesus. It says that the heavens parted. He he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he was swept up in his glory and swept up in his beauty. And, and I think it is like that gaze that Stephen had at the end of his life that God is actually restoring to the church. Wow. I mean, that's huge. Um, the spirit of devotion being so interlinked with the spirit of martyrdom in so many ways. Um, that's definitely something that constantly challenges me about the persecuted church because for them, their devotion is all of life, you know, heart, soul, mind, strength. And, um, and so martyrdom is, you know, whatever price I pay now is not even worth comparing um, with you know, being with him and, uh, wow, that's so challenging, but, um, it's so aspirational and it makes me hungry. Like God, how they know you, I want to know you in that way. Like draw me into that, that same deep conviction and, um, depth of, of devotion, um, as they have God. Like, I don't want to just settle, um, for what, for what's normal or looking to my right or to my left, but I just want to, I, I, I'm, I'm looking, um, you know, at that, that those people that pay that huge cost and saying, you know, that, that Jesus is worth all of that. Um, which is, yeah, so, so amazing. And, um, and, and something else that I love that you mentioned and you mentioned it in converting the church as well, is this idea of, um, converting yourself before you can convert others. And I love that return that you're talking about to actually a Jesus shaped life. Like what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus or like a Christ like one? Um, and asking that question, when people see me in my life, do they see Christ in me? Um, and actually taking that challenge um, because that's what our persecuted family have have to do when they can't always use words to share Jesus. They have to use their life um, and their life has to look like him in order to show people what he's like. And I think that for me um, uh, has been a real challenge of, you know, if I couldn't say that I was a Christian, if I couldn't um, talk about any kind of church activities, uh, or even what I do for work, um, just from the way that I'm loving people uh, and uh, living out my discipleship to Jesus, would people know that I was a follower of Jesus? Would people see Christ in me? Um, am I living in a way that actually begs the question? Um, yeah. And I, 
I guess at this time, specifically in the lead up to Christmas, um, this is actually a time when a lot of people are thinking about how they can embody Christ-likeness specifically to the people around them, how they can share Jesus this season. And I've personally been immersed uh, in this story of a family from uh, rural Ethiopia who for years they invited their neighbours over to their house for dinner. Uh, But because their neighbours were Islamic extremists um, and they had been persecuting them, they said no, they wouldn't come over for dinner. Um, So instead they would bake this special holiday bread and they would take it around to their neighbours who would persecute them um, and, you know, say Merry Christmas. And after years and years of being intentional and generous in their relationships with their neighbours, um, their heart, the hearts of the extremists, uh, their neighbours were warm to them and now they come over for their ha- to their house for Christmas and they said that they, they the, the family said that the extremists even see um, their house as their own. So they come over and they feel like they're home. Um, and I just saw, I, I read that it's a, it's a story of a father and two sons, two seven-year-old twin boys. And this father is intentionally raising his kids to embody laid down love for his neighbors. Um, and, and it's just a, yeah, an incredible story of intentional love and praying for our persecutors. And it made me think, um, again, about how I can show practical love to my physical neighbors this Christmas. Um, do you have any ideas, I guess, as you're preparing for Christmas on how we, um, as believers can personally love our neighbors at Christmas time? I mean, not so much in word, but in embodied action, like, you know, if we're learning from the persecuted church, how do we physically love our neighbors uh, at Christmas time? such a beautiful story. I love that so much. And it, it really just demonstrates the power of hospitality. I, I have the privilege of getting to be a part of a ministry called Alpha, which is all about um, just creating hospitable environments for people to encounter the presence of God. And we just got back from a weekend away where we invite all of these guests to um, have an encounter with the Holy Spirit but a big part of that weekend away is we bring an entire team to cook meals around the clock and have like, we have a baker there and we have a tea time and it's just this like wildly elaborate hospitable environment. And one of the guests who, um, he used to be a Christian like leader, like he was like a really strong Christian who deconstructed his faith completely, which honestly, historically has been the hardest type of person to reach. People with no context are a lot easier to share the gospel with than people who um, have a lot of um, just like pain associated with the context you're bringing them into. Um, But something he said was, he's like, there's still a lot of parts of the gospel that I'm wrapping my mind around, but nothing was like more clear to me than like the gospel present in your hospitality. And he's like, the way that you fed me and the way that you served me made the, the love of God just so obvious to me. And so that's, I think that, you know, that story you shared, um, you know, the concept of eating our way into the kingdom of God is really powerful and inviting people to our table. There's this African proverb, um, that kind of understates this point um, of peacemaking. And it's it's that distance demonizes, but proximity undoes all of this. And, and in this African proverb, um, it talks about a man approaching another being. And it says, you know, when he was far away, I thought he was a monster and he got closer and I thought he was some kind of animal. He got closer. I saw that he was human. When we were face to face, I saw that he was my brother. And it really only comes through proximity that we see like the humanity in in people who we might be opposed to and divided against in every other way. And so, um, you know, not to undercount the power of hospitality when it comes to the holidays. And just as you said, inviting people to the table. Um, I have, this is such a small reminder for myself, but I I made this candle that has the scent of frankincense as a reminder of like the presence and scent aroma of Christ. And I only burn it when unbelievers are in my family, I'm sorry, are in my home. Um, and that for me is a reminder of, um, like to actually do that with greater frequency, because when the candle hasn't been burnt in a while, it's a reminder for me to text my neighbors (laughs) to have them over for, you know, something as small as like a movie night and popcorn or something as more elaborate as a meal. Um, so that's a big part of it. And, 
I would also just through Alpha, my greatest encouragement has been um, this baseline assumption I have that God is working in people's lives. People that seem so close to me and close to the gospel, I start to hear their stories. And it's it's like supernatural activity is normative in people's lives because what God is doing in the world is drawing people to himself. And um, I got to walk with this woman this past year who had been invited to church by a friend three years ago to our church. And she came and she sat through the announcements. And before the sermon even started, she excused herself to go to the bathroom and she just left. She never came back. <laughs> she was just like, absolutely not. But then over the course of a year, she has um, these encounters that are supernatural. And ultimately, she actually has this dream in the middle of the night where she has like a vision of a man saying, like, follow God and it'll all be okay. And, and she starts reading the Bible. And then she comes to Alpha and she accepts Christ on week three before we give anybody any opportunity to respond to the gospel. There's no sanctioned altar call. And she was just like, I would like that, please. Um, and so another way that, that I engage my neighbors is with the assumption that God's already working in their life. Um, and then finally, um, it sounds like so cliche, especially at the holidays, but, um, serve the poor of your city, wherever they are, whoever they are. And that's a rich part, as I had mentioned of like Christian tradition and, and part of why Christians began being persecuted in the beginning of church history, um, is that Rome was threatened by them. And not because of their political power, but they were threatened by how they served the poor because the Christians were actually serving the Roman poor better than the Romans were. And Christians were crossing dividing lines of like ethnicity and race and and so many social lines to serve the poor of the Roman Empire. And the empire was threatened that the Christians would have the hearts of their people and and so this is like a potent part of our history. They they feared that there would be like a revolution based on this this moving towards the margins that the Christian people were so dedicated to. And so um, around the holidays, I mean, your your neighbors who are experiencing homelessness, your neighbors who are in need, are probably the most accessible people to you. Even if there are people on your block who say no to your invitation, like your neighbors in need are probably more accessible than anyone, and also probably most forgotten. And so something simple could be showing up at a local organization that's doing beautiful work, a soup kitchen or something like that in your community, a food pantry. Um, or if you are in contact with someone in need, if you pass someone experiencing homelessness, or if you pass someone in need, just ask them what the three biggest things they need are going into the holidays. Pray for them by name and see if you can meet those needs. That's such a great invitation. Never underestimate the power of hospitality. Um, and mm. hospitality is, yeah, like it's a practice and a posture of your heart, um, which, mm. yeah, it's having a meal with your neighbours and it's also looking for how you can meet the needs of the poor. Um, that's such a great invitation. Um, yeah, and for everyone listening, whether you have a house that you can have people over at or not, um, what does it look like for for you and your family to practice the spirit of hospitality um, throughout December, uh, throughout the Advent season in the lead up to Christmas? Uh, what does it look like for you to make space in your heart and your life for um, for people who don't know him yet um, and just extend that um, that generosity and, and uh, love, practical love to, to those around you? Um, yeah, I love that. I'm uh, definitely going to be considering how how I can do that with my um, with my neighbors, um, and just a good reminder to remember the poor um, in everything that we do as well. It's uh, it's beautiful, Ashley. Um, I mean, it's December. The Christmas trees are up. Um, the tinsel's up. You can't go into a store without hearing some kind of Christmas music. Mariah Carey's back out. Um, Michael Bublé is here for the only time in <laughs> in the year. Um, the Hallmark movies are on. I'm personally a huge Christmas person. Um, yes, you are as well. Look, oh, absolutely. I could not love Christmas more than I do. Same. I was ready to put up my Christmas tree in August. Absolutely. And 
I mean, it's warm here in Australia at Christmas time, but like all of the things that feel nostalgic and special about Christmas are cold things. But my husband's American, so he can't quite get his head around it. (laughs) So he actually said he was like, I love the idea of a train set under a Christmas tree when it's cold, but it feels really, really weird when it's like 30 degrees Celsius outside and we've just come back from the beach. Yes. It is a whole different world. I have thought about that. We do have our snowy white Christmases and that's just a totally different context. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, it's it's a bit weird for him to get his head around. I have had my fair share of cold Christmases in, in America as well. In all seriousness, the real joy of Advent can't be properly understood without comprehending the depths of suffering uh, for Israel that Jesus was born into. Um, And I think something that I've been dwelling on in the lead up to Christmas and just kind of preparing, you know, uh, uh, you know, as open doors, preparing for Advent um, for our supporters, what does it look like to properly understand the light of Christ um, by first bravely acknowledging the darkness of the world around us? There's so many mixed feelings for people in the lead up to Christmas because Hallmark promises this really perfect experience of Christmas. Um, But the reality is that most people have kind of mixed feelings in the lead up to Christmas. Um, You know, Christmas brings up grief, um, you know, disappointment, um, sadness. And it's pretty countercultural, I think, at Christmas time to acknowledge the darkness in the world around us uh, and even the darkness within ourselves. How do you see our persecuted family being spiritual mentors to us throughout the Advent season uh, in the lead up to Christmas? Yes. I mean, this is one of those moments where you just want to pass the microphone, right, to everybody who's living in, in a persecuted context because. Absolutely. What a beautiful question. Um, and they would have so much to share. The what I'm what I'm reminded of is the season of Advent is really a season of waiting. And it's a season, season of anticipation and a season of longing. And so much of Advent, it it's about awaiting the birth of Christ and leading up to the birth of Christ with that longing, almost the anticipation that the Israelite people would have leading up to that Christmas day. Um, but we, we also live between the first and second coming of Christ. And so we're very much all still in a season of waiting and longing that Christ has come and he is yet to return. And, and we live in this, like what theologians would call realized eschatology, where the kingdom is here and now, but it's also not yet. Um, and living in the in between victory and a victory that is yet to come. And so I think the persecuted church is is such a beautiful example of what it looks like to stand in the gap between what's here and what is not yet, and between all that Christ has done and and what is yet to come and and standing in that place of longing and waiting and anticipation. And um, I'm even reminded of, Advent candles, which which is a tradition in our community, um, where each week we light a different candle, and the candles represent hope, peace, joy, and love. And and I think that there's probably no better example than the persecuted church of you know Hebrews eleven. Hope is the assurance of things. Uh, the faith is the conviction of things hoped for, the assurance of things unseen. And and then Hebrews eleven goes on to talk about how. Um, through this great hall of faith, like our heroes of faith were murdered and martyred and persecuted and um, suffered great violence and, and even peace, you know, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, like blessed are the people standing in conflict, like holding the power of the gospel right in that gap. And he says, they will be called the children of God and, and another candle is joy and and 1 Peter 4.13 says, rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. So you'll be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And, and finally, love. You know, Jesus says in John 15, greater love has no one than this, than that one should lay down his life for a friend. And so I think, you know, all of Advent wrapped around these pillars of, of longing and beholding Jesus um, are so well demonstrated by the persecuted church. I love that you guys take so seriously 
um, marking Advent, um, I think that's actually one of the first sermons that I ever heard from Church of the City was a Christmas-related sermon. Um, And it really taught me so much about how to properly prepare my heart for Christmas. Um, Yeah, so I I love that you guys mark that. And um, yeah, I think it's a great invitation um, to all of us to to really kind of enter into what Advent means and even get in touch with that longing and, and the ache in our own heart for eternity when it's so easy to stuff that down to just deal with the day to day and just to exist, but actually to feel that gap and to feel that ache. And as you mentioned, you know, we, we, um, you know, we participate in the joy so much as we participate in the suffering of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, Ashley, you've shared so much incredible scripture this session. Um, but we ask all of our guests, uh, to share one scripture that comes to mind when they think about our persecuted family. Um, do you have a specific scripture that really resonates with you when, uh, when we consider the global body of Christ? Yeah. You know, the scripture that actually comes to mind first is a scripture about love and it's Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. And it says, for this reason, I kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Holy Spirit and your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, they have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the fullness of the measure of God. And then it says, and to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us, to him be all glory, honor, power, the church and the Christ Jesus forever. Amen. And, and what, why that comes to mind in this context is, is the promise is that as we're united with all of God's holy people, only then can we begin to grasp how wide and how long and how deep and how high is the love of Christ. And so I think there's something so beautiful about beholding Jesus in union with one another, that we can piece together the parts of the puzzle, the parts of Christ and, and the parts that are yet to be beheld um, by linking arms with our persecuted brothers and sisters. I love that. I've actually never noticed that in that passage where it says together with all God's holy people, um, you know, have, have the power to grasp um, the love, you know, of God. And I love that in order to grasp the depths of God, we need first unity. Um, that's beautiful. Uh, we always close our episodes in prayer. I feel like the prayer, like prayer and the heartbeat of God has just been so woven throughout this conversation, but I would love you to pray that passage over, um, us, our listeners and the global church in this season of Advent, uh, as we prepare our hearts for Christmas. Yes, absolutely. I'd be honored. God, we kneel before you. We ask God that you would fill us with power, fill every listener with power to receive your spirit in their inner being. God, would you fortify us so that you would dwell in our hearts through faith? And God, we just pray that you would bring great unity among all of your holy people. God, and as we are united, would you fill us with love? Would you fill us, you say, to all the fullness of the measure of God? This is what it is to be mature in Christ, to understand the love of God. God, would you give us the inner fortitude to even begin to grasp how high how wide, how long, and how deep is your love that surpasses knowledge, the love that we will spend our entire lives like running toward and and trying to to understand, even though it's bigger than, than what our hearts can even hold, bigger than what our minds can comprehend. But God, it is still a love that you invite us into this like ultimate journey of discovering. And so God, I just pray that that by your Holy Spirit, the spirit that raises the dead to life, the spirit that gives the blind their sight, God, that by your spirit, you would open our hearts to receive your love. 
that we might walk in your fullness and ultimately that all glory, honor, power would be yours, Christ Jesus. Pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Ashley. Ah, oh, man, there's something so magnetic about Christ in you, Ashley. Um, just, I mean, throughout our conversation and our conversation offline, it's just so clear, um, just the beauty and the, the gentleness and the depth and the generosity and the grace um, that you emanate just reminds me so much of Jesus. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation and share these precious jewels. It's been so lovely to be with you. Um, I would love one day to be with you in person. Maybe we can, um, re, you know, record a, a podcast together from the same room one day, but um, it's been such a joy. Thank you for spending this time with me and um, Merry Christmas to you and uh, the whole Church of the City crew. Uh, we, we love you here open doors thank you so much jordan we're so inspired by you your work thank you for stewarding this space and and really just blessed by all of your listeners pressing into this like very crucial part of the kingdom of god and so thank you all thanks ashley i'll catch you later bye I hope you loved the conversation with Ashley as much as I did. She brings equal parts theological conviction and this beautiful heart to everything she says. And she really inspired me so much to allow the stories of the persecuted church to challenge and change me. If you'd like to walk with the persecuted church throughout Advent, our team at Open Doors, a bunch of the church team uh, and, and some others have put together this Advent devotional, which you can download. Uh, you can find it in our show notes um, or also on Instagram or on our website. And it's just packed full of stories and lessons from the persecuted church, mostly from our travels to the fields and our encounters with believers who have really just blown our minds with their courage and conviction. The Advent devotional is free to download so you can join us as we prepare our hearts for Advent and the celebration of our beautiful Jesus, who is the light in our darkness and the hope in our hopelessness. Have a wonderful Christmas from our Open Doors family to yours. We love you and we're so grateful for your support and prayers. We'll be back later this month with some more stories from the field and from the global church. So I'll see you then.